Welcome to Men Are Nuts, a podcast about mental health, emotional health, psychological health and physical health awareness in men and society. First, it started with MAN, the acronym for Men Are Nuts. And we have a very special guest on the show for you today. Can you introduce yourself? Yes, I can. My name's Howard Rankin, Dr. Howard Rankin. I've had a long career as a psychologist, coach, consultant. Uh, also got a lot into neuroscience. So I've had a very interesting journey and, and continue to do so. Write books. I'm very interested right now in what's called cognitive neuroscience, so how people really think. Yeah. Um, and I just have a book that I've written called I Think Therefore I'm Wrong which really looks at the sort of default mental setting of, of how we think uh, and where it breaks down and I think that's really important for people to understand and it's an important educational topic yeah. um, because until you understand what influences you your perception, your memory and so forth you know, it's difficult to really think straight <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So that's that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. So where are you, whereabouts are you based? Well, I'm based in um, South Carolina, uh, in a place, a lovely place called Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. I was recruited here, believe it or not, from Northampton, England. Really? Uh, about 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, w- I was raised, I was born and raised in North London, uh, about a mile or so from Wembley Stadium, which wow. as a soccer mad kid was, was perfect for me. Yeah. Um, uh, I quickly found out that a good way of getting into you know, major soccer games uh, at Wembley was to wait for the game to kick off, the streets to empty, and then... You know, the spivs and touts who were selling tickets, you know, would be just give them, give them away. Cause yeah, yeah. That was the end of that day. And, and uh, my fav- favorite story, well, I've got two favorite stories. One is, one day I went to an England-Scotland game. Yeah. But I ended up in the wrong end of the stadium. Right. I was with all the drunken Scots fans. And, uh, and actually, if hadn't, Scotland hadn't won that day, I'm not sure I'd still be here talking. <laughs> uh, so, uh, and I did also manage to get into the... I, did, well, I actually bought tickets, which were a ridiculously low price. I, I got tickets for standing room for all the games at Wembley Stadium. Um, so, and I, and I forget what the price was, but yeah. it was ridiculously low. It was like £15. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even back then, and so I got to see the semi-final and the final, and yeah, that was amazing. So I grew up there, um, went to uh, uni at the University of Nottingham. Nottingham, and then <laughs> uh, did yeah, that's yeah, where I'm from. Nottingham, then did. Um, are you really? I was going to ask you that. Yeah, yeah. I'm from, from Nottingham. Nottingham. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. So that was fun. I enjoyed that a lot. And then I got into masters and then PhD programs in clinical psychology at the University of London at the Institute of Psychiatry, which was the premier program, not just in the UK, but maybe in the world at the time. So, you know, met a lot of interesting people and, um, 
spent the first about 10 years of my career working on their addiction research unit, um, doing research mostly into alcoholism and running programs. Uh, I then got recruited to Northampton um, to St. Andrew's Hospital, which is an interesting place. I met lots of interesting people there, including Princess Diana, who came to open a wing of the hospital. So that wow. was interesting. Yeah. Um, and then I got recruited to the U.S. here to run a behavioral wellness program and, you know, done lots of other things since then. Wow. So you were recruited, and is that where you've always stayed then, in... in in um, South Carolina? Yeah, yeah. So I was recruited here in Hilton Head Island is a, is a lovely place. It's, it's considered to be, you know, one of the best islands. It is a tourist location. We have a lot of tourists that come here, particularly in the summer. Uh, and it was just fortunate that my friend, who had been studying addictions in uh, in Mississippi, uh, we met at a, con- a NATO conference on addictions. He was working in that, and then at uh, some point thereafter, he decided um, that he would come to this great location, Hilton Head, and start a behavioral wellness residential program. And it had been going and being successful for a few years, and that's when he invited me to come over and, and run the thing. So, and I've been here ever since. I've traveled extensively in the U.S. Um, I was an exchange student in high school um, in the U.S. in California. So there's a lot of other interesting stories that go with that. Um, So I've always been an Americophile. um, And um, I have a story about that, too. Um, I I always like to listen to sports on my radio in my bedroom. And so I'd even listen to, you know, soccer matches in French. So even though I couldn't understand, I could hear the crowd roaring. Yeah. Uh, and one day I came across the American Armed Forces Network out of Germany, and they were broadcasting sports games, uh, baseball in the summer, football, NFL football in the winter. And I taught myself all those sports. And so then... Fast forward like three or four years, I get this opportunity to apply for an exchange program, which was was pretty competitive, and you had to write an essay. And in the essay, I wrote about my love for baseball. So I go up to the uh, American Embassy in London for an interview. There's four or five people interviewing me. And the guy says, oh, I see you're interested in baseball, and rather cynically and challengingly said so so who's the best pitcher then and without even thinking i said oh well, you can't argue that bob gibson the 1.12 era 289 375 strikeouts <laughs> the guy almost fell off his <laughs> <laughs> and i ended up getting selected and ended up going to uh, uh, la uh, or a part, beautiful part of la and stayed with a wonderful family for seven months so um, you know, it was in my blood early. Yeah, fantastic. So, your paint us a picture. Tell us a picture. Paint us a picture about um, what it's like to live um, where you are and in the US. I mean, you, like you said, you seem you seem quite at home there, even though you you know mm. born in England and you seem quite at home. Yeah. Yes, I've been here a long time. 
Uh, Hilmhead, um, interestingly enough, um, probably in the 1950s, I think, was bought mainly to be deforested. It's got tree and tons of trees in it, and there's, there's family, a couple of brothers, bought it specifically to for the trees and they were going to make it into a lumber business but one of them a guy called charles fraser said no let don't do that this is a fantastic spot it would be a phenomenal recreation residential tourist spot and mm. so he bought it off them and developed it um and so it's been developed with nature sustainability beauty in mind um beaches are beautiful um, the island itself is like 12 miles long by at its widest two miles wide um, as I'm sitting here looking out my window I'm surrounded by beautiful trees uh, lots of birds wildlife so it's really a, a lovely lovely spot to be in and it certainly helped my appreciation over the years of natural beauty, yeah. uh, animals, things yeah. that living and growing up in suburban London, you know, you just don't really see. Yeah. Um, and, and so I've been very grateful for that. It gets a bit hot here in the summer and we do have to watch out for hurricanes. Um, we've probably had to evacuate four or five times. Oh, really? Uh, for hurricanes never been directly hit. Yeah, never been. Yeah, the hurricane season just about to start. The real challenge is sort of August and September. Um, and uh, we had one come pretty close in 2000. Uh, Matthew, Hurricane Matthew in 2016 had to evacuate it. And parts of my neighborhood, which have about 90 houses in it, probably 20% of them needed new roofs because and trees fell on them. Fortunately, we were unscathed. But this time of year and a little later in the summer, we all get geared up for dealing with potential hurricanes, as most of the coast does. Yeah. Um, so that's something that is a disadvantage. Yeah. Yeah. Have you been back to the to the UK, England? Have you ever been back? You know, is there friends there or is there anyone that you don't know? In yes, yes. And interesting. Yeah, interestingly enough, I was back in November. I'm glad I came back uh, to see my family. They were having a family reunion. I hadn't seen some of my cousins for a long time, which was great. Um, I have a sister and her husband and uh, grown children who live in England. They still live. It's interesting, my, my sister still lives pretty much in the neighborhood where I grew up. So it was fascinating walking down those streets and going by the stadium and, you know, down Wembley High Road yeah. and all the places that where I grew up. Um, and it seems, to, it, it doesn't seem a lot different now, but my perspective, you know, living in a beautiful location for suburbia, you know, has changed. Um, yeah, so. Yeah. So would, uh, would you? Yeah, I would consider you, myself very fortunate. Would you? Would you go? Is this? Is are you seeing America as your home then, or would you go back? Or what? You know what's? Yes. You see it as your home? Yeah. No. I, I mean, I do. I, I do see it as my home. I've been here a long time now, about thirty years. Yeah. Um, so I do see it as a home, but I'm still a British citizen. I'm a U.S. citizen also. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I enjoy coming back to the UK. Obviously, that part of my heart and soul is is still there. Um, I follow a lot of British culture because I watch a lot of soccer. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, you know, part of me is still there. But um, you know, I've lived here now. My my wife is uh, was born in New York, and. Uh, so we have a son who was born here and uh, is now in the U.S. Army. Um, so, yeah, this is—I've lived half my life in the U.S. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I appreciate it for what it is, but I also appreciate what UK has to. Yeah. I can I can see that you definitely have um, become what do you call it? Americanized? Is that what you call it? I don't know. You you know you've you've settled because you're calling football soccer. That's right. That's a good <laughs> tip off, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's right. I think well, people in the UK say, "Oh, don't you sound like an American?" And people in the US say, "Oh, you sound like you know Brit." So I think my accent's shifted, and yeah, it's yeah. probably somewhere off the coast of North Carolina or something like that. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm good at putting on accents, so I can always exaggerate. So, so living living in the US. I mean, we spoke earlier um, about what's actually, what's what's actually happening now. Then with the this pandemic, or the, you know, bef- you know, before you know, it's going to obviously it's going to be linking to what we're going to be talking about, to be mental health and things like that. What what's happening with what's happening right. there with the virus? Um, well, it's it it's very. Um, obvious uh, that there is a lot of impatience amongst the population in general about quotation lockdown. Now it's interesting um, in my book I think therefore I'm wrong I talk about how words absolutely influence perception right yeah. so you know lockdown lockdown is rather harsh term yeah. I mean it's a stay at home you know so if you tell somebody we're going to lock you down or we're going to ask you to stay at home, you see that quite differently. And so part of part of one of the things that interests me about how the mind works is how indeed words and how what's called the framing effect, how things are framed, absolutely influence your perception of them. And so over here, you know, we, and, and I guess that word has is used in common parlance now pretty much everywhere lockdown but i don't like it it's stay at home it's not locked nobody's coming and locking you in your house yeah uh and so that's an issue but anyway the point is over here uh, a lot of people you know free speech is a big deal uh over here and people feel they should be able to say whatever they want and of and of course, free speech is a right, but it doesn't make you right. Another use, uh, another problem with a word that's used differently. Yeah. Um, and so there's been a lot of sort of negative stuff. Uh, people, now I understand that people want to get back to work. A lot of people have lost jobs. Um, there's going to be lots of bankruptcies, and I do understand the harshness of what people are facing. So there's a lot of opposition. People want to, you know, just go back to quotation mark normal. Yeah. 
Now, personally, I don't know that it's going to be possible to go back to quotation mark normal because this is now in our consciousness as a major event influence us, you know, for years to come. Even if the virus disappeared overnight, we're still going to be influenced by the memory of that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot a lot of pushback against, you know, science and governments and, and, and governors about, we need to open up, you know, we need to open up, and they understand that. And um, I do... Uh, a couple of podcasts myself, and one is with a predictive analytics company called Intuality AI that predicts the future and uh, has been pretty accurate actually so far. Yeah. And we had uh, a friend of mine who's well known over here, a guy called David Katz, Dr. David Katz. Um, and I think his position seems reasonable, which is, you know, let's protect the people who are most at risk, which seems to be the elderly. Yep. Let's take sensible precautions, but let's go back to what we need to be doing. And I do think that that's a, a reasonable approach, recognizing that, you know, hotspots are going to jump up and then you're going to have to close things down a bit for a while. That's the way it is. There is no, you know, it's almost place by place. And of course, the U.S. is a huge, yes, huge place. Um, and there are some, yeah, and there are par- parts of it that are, haven't even seen the coronavirus, you know. Um, And so this is another problem, you know, where in Wyoming, you know, where they've only had a few cases and maybe 20 deaths, why should Wyoming shut down? Because New York, totally different place, is having major problems. And and so that's contributed to the discussion. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, quite often, the other day I looked at some... I've, I've seen some articles to do with things like pollution and which is probably one of the main things that's driving it as well. Um, congested places, are, like if you're talking about New York, um, it's probably what you'd probably say it's probably one of the most congested places in in around America mm-hmm. as a major city. Um, yeah. So there's, yep. there's, there's something to be said for, like you said, and also what you spoke about words, um, you, you know, you're kind of like on, on the same sort of, I'm kind of on that same sort of trail of thought of words being... Um, we've got to be careful what we say because words are very powerful. So what you're saying there is the lockdown. I, you know, <laughs> try to avoid saying that. Simply the fact what, simple fact that what you're saying there um, because it means um, lockdown. You know, the words lock and then down, you're in. Um, and then the other thing was the... They call it social distances when I don't think it should be called that it should be called phys- physical distancing I mean they've been on this thing about social but it doesn't lend itself well to people who may be living alone and people who have correct um, elderly people who may be living alone younger people living alone people with mental health issues um, and I spoke to you know spoke to, you know I had, a, had someone a, a, a guy called Jake Core, who who who's an Arsenal fan? He you know he was he just runs a fa- Arsenal fanzine yesterday, and he was telling me he has Asperger's, he has um, de- depression, and he suffers from anxiety as well. Um, but you won't you won't be able to tell because you know the the reason how we were talking, and you know he, he tries to make the most of it as best as he can. Um, and he was saying that from his point of view, um, and you talk this is coming straight from horse's mouth in a sense that. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's affecting people with mental health. 
this thing called lockdown and um, social distancing. Mm-hmm. And if you put those words together, lockdown and social distancing, it just means that somebody's going to go, look at those words, go in the house and not speak to anybody. Do, 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 do you understand what I mean? It's going to be, it's going to have a massive impact on someone's mental health. Absolutely, no. So, yeah. Absolutely, we don't understand that. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I go into that and uh, I think therefore I'm wrong. Looking at, you know, words are um, processed in different areas of the brain depending on their meaning. And so they obviously have the potential to produce emotional responses. Uh, and of course, uh, the media and, and writers and anyone putting stuff out there has learned that fact. And a lot of the time, they're engaged in manipulation. They're trying to get an emotional response from you. And that's a problem. That's really a problem because it can, it frames how that is perceived. Uh, And I I do see it as manipulation uh, because it is deliberate. And um, that bothers me a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad (laughs) glad you've said that because. I say, you know, you sound like, you know, you start to sound more and more like what some of the things I've been saying and, and thinking of to do with words and I say words being powerful um, because it does, it does lend itself to people, um, somebody, you know, you, you, you're going to go in, you're going to lock yourself down, go inside that house. And even if they're in a family, right. if they're told, if they're in a family and they're told to lock down, you know, someone with a mental, you know, someone with, with, um, who's struggling with depression or, it's going to take those words and think, well, I don't really want to be near, you know, I can't be near my family. So I'm just going to go in my room, I'm going to stay there. Um, even in a house where there's, where, there, where there's family. So it's, and then they can't touch or hug. So it's, um, it's definitely a detriment. And there's more, we can talk about this all day to do with words and, and how powerful they are um, and how they are used by the mainstream, the media. Um, and we, can see, we can look at the governments and things like that who run the media corporations. Um, uh, it's, they put powerful words out there and, and quite often those words are, the, are to the detriment mm-hmm. um, and also creating fear mm-hmm. that's yep. what, yeah it's been, you know is the economy yes exactly is the economy going to crash is it going to slump is it going to dip you know yeah. three different ways of saying that um, with different emotional connotations and, and it's interesting you may be interested in this um, Freud's nephew, a guy called Edward Bernays, yeah. um, actually took a lot of his uncle's ideas and basically started, came to the US and basically started the business of public relations and manipulation of, in the media, manipulation of people. Um, and there's a wonderful BBC documentary called The Century of the Self which chronicles that it's a, if anyone's interested in that, you, you can still get it, I think on YouTube, yeah. the century of the self and explains that and explains how that was the beginning of using what we knew about psychology, um, to, for what you might consider nefarious ends, but you know, for manipulating people for all sorts of things politically and, and for sale, for selling stuff too. Yeah. Uh, and that's, even to take it even further today with what's called, called neuromarketing, uh, where specifically people say this is we can target the brain by doing this, yeah. uh, 
and there's a I mean, I understand that, and there's an upside to that, but there's definitely a downside to it. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the, I was going to say a similar thing to you then, but that's how we that's how we get things like advertising and marketing, um, because then you it creates. A, uh, was it was it somewhere? Was it is it somewhere in? Um, is it New York or there's somewhere in America where there's where they had? I don't know if they've still got it. Where there's a place where it's all it was a market, you know, where it was a hub for advertising and marketing. I can't remember the place, what the place is called now. But it was a place there which was a hub for marketing of anything, magazines, all sorts of in America. And it's, it's I don't know if it's a, some sort of avenue, some, I don't know what it was, but there's a place in America where they... Well, Madison, I think you think, I think you're thinking of Madison Avenue in New York, um, which still has that reputation, obviously, with growth and technology. You can do these things from other places, but, but Madison Avenue in New York City, in Manhattan, you know, was, has the reputation, certainly did in past years, of being the place of advertising yeah. and where people were learning and using manipulative techniques using language, imagery, tools to sell whatever they were selling, whether that was an idea or a, a, you know, a vacation or a product or a service. Uh, and, um, you know, the advertising laws in this country are pretty, pretty thin, to be honest, compared yeah. to what they are in the UK and certainly other parts of, of Europe. You can go on TV and say pretty much anything you want about a product, even if it has absolutely zero evidence to back it up. You know, like, I am the best coach in the United States, you know? I am the best one. No one's got better results than me. I've seen thousands of people. I can tell you, every one of them has been, you know, I can say that, which is you know, honestly, bullshit. Uh, and and there's that that has a very damaging effect, I think, when you grow up in a media environment, in a marketing environment, where that is being blasted at you twenty four seven. Yeah, yeah. And um, so you you've looked at your book and and you your. Obviously, you've written the book and you've been through years of studies and things like that. What's what's brought you to this? What's brought you to this point where you're looking at maybe, I mean, helping using your, you know, the things that you've learned to kind of help others. What's brought you to that kind of point? Well, it's interesting. I've always been um, always pursued a lot of things um, you know if I get an idea and I'm passionate about it and I like to pursue it until either it comes to fruition or it's time to give it up yeah. so I've, I've, I've got into a lot of things the things that um, particularly interest me although I've got a lot of interest really are centered around this topic of communication and how that is communicated now you know you're talking about mental health and mental illness um there was a a classic book in the 19 i think it was 1960 by a guy called thomas zatz who basically said mental illness is a myth Um, and really what he was saying is why do we need to medicalize differences Hmm. right and there's certainly some truth in that now you know 
some mental disorders are genetic, some uh, brain dysfunctions, uh, and there is a physical basis to some of those things. A lot of it is programming of our brains, which we do every second of the day, and our experience is program them in a particular way and then generate how we see things and think about things. Um, and again, that's a good use of words, mental illness. Yeah. Is it is it a disease? Well, there are some you know, legitimate diseases, things like Huntington's disease, which is a genetic disease. But, you know, is, for example, is anxiety a disease or is it a fact of life that sometimes gets out of control? Yeah. Is mood fluctuation a disease or is it really just a part of life? And again, at the extremes can be really problematic. Is Asperger's, and I should tell you, I have a, uh, an adult son with autism. Yeah. Um, is Asperger's a disease or is it just a way of thinking that actually brings with it lots of benefits, you know, and so that's, that's again, all to do with this communication, perception, thinking about things. Because yeah. again, you labeled something a disease and an illness, then we're into the medical model of treating it. And while that can be helpful some of the time, some of the time it's unhelpful. Yeah. So why do you think it's, I'm going to get, get your opinion on this. Why do you think those things have been labeled? Again, I think uh, as, as as medicine develops, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think they, yeah. you know, as medicine develops, they're able to categorize things into things that were normal and not normal, yeah. and then labeled everything that was not normal as a disease, even though there was no evidence, or that, you know, we didn't know what the functional physiology of a disease really was. And actually, for a lot of conditions, there isn't a functional description of a disease um, until fairly recently. So, you know, antidepressants, for example, we know that somehow, you know, these transmitters are involved in disease, but we don't know exactly which part of them, where, which pathways are. So we just blast the whole brain with an antidepressant, which has all sorts of effects. Uh, and again, I'm not knocking antidepressants, but again, we do have to be careful about that. And one of the things that particularly has, again, one of my interests has been looking in the last 20 years at the emergence of the ability to look at the brain, see what's going on at the brain, and see the relationship between brain activity and what we might call dysfunctional behaviors. And then using that using biofeedback and neurofeedback to retrain the brain to become more functional and uh you know i really believe in that that's still i mean there's been 30 40 years of research in that to some extent it's still in its infancy but i see it i've, I've done it uh, you know i've used it with clients and i see it has enormous power because if you say to somebody who has suffered you know serious anxiety and depression all their life if you say you know really what's happened you've got a you know your brain for whatever reason is, is is functioning like this we can change it then that that changes their perception of their problem 
it's okay. It's my brain. It's not me. Because so many people with mental health issues, um, you know, it's made worse by their own level of self-deprecation. Yeah. Um, where that actually does not need to be the case. Um, and, and so when you're able to effectively help people with this sort of neurotechnology, which is becoming more and more available, you know, you see some amazing things. Uh, people will understand what's going on and, and are able to begin to master the problem themselves. Now, one of the problems with medicine and healthcare, it does create a dependence on healthcare services, drugs, yep. surgery, all of those things. Yep. Uh, which the message with that is I can't do anything about this, which is not a good message. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, we need things that empower people to say, you know what, I got this, I can do something about this and, and help them understand the tools that do that and say, look, this for whatever reason, I don't know how it happened, but you know, your brain is, is is the programs running in your brain are have been hacked a bit, and we need to get them back. Yeah. If you say that to somebody, it stops being about that. Yeah. How was how, you, you spoke about? Because I'm I'm going to connect this obviously to I say obviously, but I mean I'm going to connect connect this to your your son. You're doing the work, and you're, you're, you you said your son had um, Asperger's. Um, is there is there kind of like a correlation between what you're doing and 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 because I've, I've I mean I've worked with, I've worked with children with um, you know all different you know so I mean so many different you know Aspergers um, oh, so many different um, types of you know you know learning difficulties and, and things like that so I, I mean I, the, other, the other week I saw a documentary and the documentary suggested that what, similar to what you're saying there is in a sense was. It was talking about the soul and and it's um, and about us, and it was saying that, um, you know, the, a person who seems to be like he was in a car crash, and he was and he may be brain dead, but they was able to say something to the person, and they were able to, you know, maybe flick their eyes up and down, eyelids up and down, and and so so there's obviously something to do with something. The brain's not actually dead in a sense because it's right. Do you see what I mean? Um, right. Because he's able to. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, he's not. He wasn't able to see the person, or and if they look, and if they are able to see the person, they may be able to see them faintly, or they might be blind, but they're able, or they're able to move something, the finger, um, to let the person know, you know, they, they're they're here, even though they couldn't speak. So it's similar, that's all similar to what you're saying about the the, the, the science now behind um, looking into the brain. Yeah, interestingly, and I've written. Uh, for the last few years, although I've continued with some of the things I've been talking about, I've also um, been doing a lot of writing around these topics for other people. And a couple of years ago, I did uh, a book with a woman called Barbara, uh, 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 Barbara Murillo, and the book was called In God's Waiting Room. And the story was that actually in 2009, she got the... Uh, H1N1 flu that was going around then, mm. SARS, yeah, yeah. and was in a very critical state. Yeah, was in a very critical stage. You know, her heart was failing, uh, and she was in a coma in the hospital. 
and um, you know the prognosis was not good she was going to be she was on the list for heart transplant um, and so she was in a coma for about two weeks and then when she woke up um, and a family had been with her most of the time and had been keeping a diary of what was going on she um, recalled a series of want for a better expression I'm going to call dreams uh, while she was in the coma so one of the things to know is that when you're in a coma you're not brain dead yeah. you can't respond to the outside world but you do integrate you yeah. do senses some of what the outside world is doing uh, and, and so she had these dreams and they were fascinating because as she started looking at these dreams um, she was being able to make a connection between the dreams and what was actually happening to her so the first dream was about her driving down a highway looking for desperately looking for electricity and that was happening at the time that her heart was being cardioverted. And so the assumption was, you know, they were talking about, you know, electricity and stuff. And in her subconscious processing of that, she turned this into the dream of driving down a highway. Um, and she had a number of stories like this. And then she came to me and asked her, asked me to help with writing of the book. Yeah. And as I looked at the dreams she was having, I could see there was actually a pattern to them. And what was actually happening in her dreams was that she was resolving a lot of her spiritual, psychological issues. Mm -hmm. um, so the first part of the dream, um, it was all about, uh, you know, being a beautiful woman and, and you know, attracting guys and, and those sorts of things. And interestingly enough, she one of the dreams was her mom sent her a tape that said, if you listen to this tape, you'll become the most beautiful woman in the world. You'll be totally irresistible. But there was a little sign on the thing saying, but if you listen to it, you'll be dead in 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. So she ends up listening to this. She ends up listening to this dream. Uh, and then, you know, the next thing she's kind of in a dumpster and she's dead. And then the next thing is, um, a Satan type figure comes to her and tries to do a deal with her. I'm saying she'd be useless, you know, he needs to follow her and she almost does the deal and doesn't. Uh, and then the next is an angel comes to her and uh, says, don't worry, um, you will sit, look through different eyes and your heart will be healed. And so, you know, this goes on and on. And then she wakes up out of this coma and actually her eyesight has changed because she's had a mini stroke and it's affected her, her eyesight. Yeah. Um, and then the uh, ca cardiologist comes along and says, okay, well, we need to check your heart. She says, well, I saw an angel and he told me I was, you know, I was going to be fine. <laughs> cardiologist had said, yeah, but we still need to do the test. And he went and did the test and he came back in and said, I don't believe it you have a heart of a 20 year old mm. yours is a heart that we would actually transplant not need one uh. and obviously that was a major difference for her and we've got testimony from the doctors saying i can't possibly explain how this happened i can only describe it as a miracle yeah. um but i think it's a phenomenal story of the relationship between soul and spirituality and consciousness and psyche uh and um you know i think that's that's an area that I like to operate in because very often 
people who do have anxiety, depression, all those other conditions, that 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 spiritual side, that that meaning, that connection between all of those parts of you, and, and clearly there's a very clear mind-body connection, yeah. um, just often get ignored. getting away from I mean, we're not saying that medicine doesn't help or anything like that but you're looking at ways that right. you could help um uh humans people you know men women mm-hmm. you can mm-hmm. you, you know you're looking at ways mm-hmm. that you can help us see patterns or the way we look at ourselves in terms of um our you know way we deal with things our our brain waves um because what's and again what's interesting again you know <laughs> Yeah, I've I saw some. There was something to be said for when we talk when we look at you. You know, you're talking about your son's got Asperger's and autism, and and uh, you know, is that we schools in the sense and uh, schools or or organisations have always looked at those things as a detriment, and quite often, um, it quite often it's, it could be seen as a gift. Not could be, but it is. Because quite often some of the things yes. that they can do, um, they say a normal, I say in in in, in um, a normal person, they say, you know, can't. Um, if you look at things like uh, you know, any prime example, two examples of this. I mean, I I've mentioned this before on, on the podcast as, as well. Is um, I've always seen it's only it's only now I thought, wow, gosh, in the last couple of years I thought, wait a minute, Forrest Crump, you know. You know, he he had he had autism or you know Asperger's. He had those things because he he was able to to run. <laughs> I mean, but he was able to, and he didn't stop running, which is what quite often what, what a lot this they need focus. Um, and it, it, and you know, quite I've met, I've met people, you know, I've met you know, work with kids, I've worked with children, I've worked with young young people, even adults, and quite often there's, there's something that they need for there's something in the brain that's letting them. We I need attention. If there's too many things going off, it, the, the, my wires are all over the place, and I can't focus or anything. So it's it's almost like a focus thing. So what we're looking at here is, it's almost getting away from that pharmaceutical-driven. Um, we put the, these, we gave them these different labels, but then we create <laughs> create so many different tablets, um, and then like you say, they, they they have to stay on them. They have to stay on them maybe for the rest of their lives, which isn't good. Um, instead of yeah. using other techniques to try and help um, help the brain, would you? Would you? Absolutely. Say- absolutely. 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 And, and uh, for for some time, I've been talking about doing a sort of uh, fake pharma ad for a new hypothetical drug, um, and of course. And when we talk about the side effects, we actually show the side effects, right? Yeah. So 
instead of all this lovely music playing and all these lovely images playing when they're speeding off the fact that you might die from this, we actually see, you know, people dropping dead and, you know, people throwing up. And, you know, that would be a fair representation of what the, and, and, and stuck on the drug for 20 years. That would be a fair representation. But of course, it isn't. It represents, it goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's all, oh, it's all going to be wonderful and light and it's, it's beautiful and all that. And to me, that that's manipulation of the worst kind, really. And we need to get away from that now. Medications, obviously, can be helpful. They can. But so many of the medications, I mean, talk about attention deficit disorder. Yeah, ADHD. When I was in training, there was no such thing as attention yeah. deficit disorder. There was, but it was called minimal brain dysfunction. Yeah. And it was the pharmaceutical industry that really pushed to change it to attention deficit disorder so they could make a multi-billion dollar industry yeah. out of providing medication for ADD. Um, and that that is, I had an interesting experience. So, you know, that was my perspective. ADD is wildly over-prescribed, uh, over-diagnosed and prescribed, which yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Um, but then I got a great opportunity and was using some brain mapping technology, one of the first to use in the public school system, uh, in a fairly low SES school district. And one of the nice things about brain maps and, and uh, some of the EEG technology is because of research there are certain EEG patterns that are related to different conditions like attention deficit disorder like autism and Asperger and so there were a number of kids there who were diagnosed actually weren't diagnosed ADD but the brain map suggested they were classic ADD they really had the brain dysfunction right. And interestingly, because they were low SES and you know either had only one parent or were raised by grandparents, they didn't have the opportunities to actually get the medication. And I remember one time that I saw uh, this young boy, he was probably six, that was the group I was working with, and his dad came in and we did a test on the son, and his his father and his mother were in a big post-divorce fight, you can imagine what that was about, about yeah. their son. Yeah. Mother's, mother said, oh, he's got ADD, he needs to be on drugs, yeah. and dad said, oh, that's baloney. But I was able to show him the map of the brain and how it worked and said, this is actually classic ADD mm. and he burst the guy burst into tears I mean to be able to see it and what was going on in the brain convinced him okay yeah. I need to get this good help uh, and that's the sort of thing we're talking about um, being able to see brain dysfunction and be able to see yeah this is what research says this pattern is wrong we need to change it and we can we can focus on it is totally different than saying yeah you got to take these med for the rest of your life yeah. and the other thing that you say I don't want to go on too long uh, but I have seen so many examples of people whose supposed mental illness are phenomenal talents in fact I had one woman who was pretty severely bipolar and you know she was good maybe three or four months of the year but the rest of the time she was sort of over the line 
but she was so good for the four months of the year and so creative that her company paid her full salary for the four functional months that she had where she stayed on the right side of the line. Yeah. Um, and it just shows it's, it's talent. And I've seen kids, uh, and we can talk about the educational system, I've seen kids label themselves as dumb and stupid yeah. because they don't fit in the conventional system. Yeah. That one kid who said, yeah, I'm dumb and stupid, he was brilliant with mechanically. He yeah. could fix anything. And yeah. I said, you're not dumb. Right? The education system is, you know, based on memory, verbal memory. And if you don't have verbal memory, you're going to be a problem. And that's so antiquated, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, I've seen loads of articles online. There's, there's so many, and it, there's, there's something to, to actually four, um, four people with, you know, there's so many success stories um, with, you know, people who've been. You know, thrown out of school because they've got ADHD or ADD and some people who were diagnosed and misdiagnosed because the parents, you know, obviously we've got, there's a lot of conundrums there. There's things where the parents probably struggling and they can't cope and, and, and they need somebody to help them. So the, the panic and um, and all these sort of things and maybe, you know, you know people who are from um, lower income backgrounds and things like that. So it can be, it, it can be a bit of a struggle and like I say, a bit of a conundrum. And it's and and it's good that what you're doing is that you're looking at ways to, like I say, you know, I'm not I'm not saying you know we're not here saying the the pharmaceutical industry and yeah, yes, they're big money making, you know, scam artists if you want to call that, but we're not saying that the drugs you know there's certain things that won't help people, but for a lot of it, um, there's other other ways that the um, people can be treated. So your book, tell us about a little bit about your book then, before, you know, we, we um, what's, what's your book? My book's, uh, my current book, yeah. yeah, I've written lots of books, okay. actually, I'm up to, uh, I've written 12 in my own name, co-written 9, and wow. I've ghost-written another 30, so, wow. <laughs> uh, um, but, <laughs> so my book's, this book's called, my recent one is, most recent one's called, I Think, Therefore I'm Wrong, yeah. A Guide to Bias political correctness, fake news, and the future of mankind. And really what it is, is it looks at how the mind works, you know, very simply, we like, it's very easy. It likes to divide things up into binary things. It's either this or that. And that works on kind of day-to-day mundane things. But when you try to dive down into complexity, it just does not work at all. And one of the, and, and what I'm talking about there is critical thinking. Uh, and people aren't really taught critical thinking. They're not taught about how bias, and there's a gazillion biases that have been identified, um, that come into play and influence us and distort our perception. Yeah. And we need to understand that if we're going to make good major decisions in our own lives, you know. Like, yeah. you know, should I take this job? You know, should I marry this person? Um, should I have kids? Whatever, you know, those key decisions that influence your life. You want to be able to think creatively about it and, and deep about it, not just, oh, uh, just like it's where should we go to dinner tonight? Um, it, it's got to be more complex than that. And the problem is life is so complex today yeah. that, you know, we can't, we don't deal with it very well. I mean, this, this virus situation, 
is one, where we've got two very strong competing needs, one economy, one health. How do we deal with that? Most problems are even more complex than that. I mean, one of my favorites, George Bernard Shaw, said, I made a good living for myself. Good li- I made a good living for myself thinking two or three times a week. Um, now, if he was saying thinking as in critical thinking, yeah, that makes sense because most people don't do that. They're not trained in to do it. They are guided by their emotions. The first thing that comes out, they have an emotional response. They want to be consistent with their narratives. We all do it to varying degrees. And as a result, you know, we, we don't make good decisions, we can't tackle complexity very well. We just can't do it. Um, we need to be trained to do that, and that training is lacking. So my book, sorry, getting away there. No, uh, no, my, book, no. book, my book looks at thinking, how we think. It looks at memory. Memory can be unreliable, often influenced by, by all sorts of things, the environment, our mood, other people. Uh, and I, I and I dig a little bit into the research, but I try to keep it light. That's kind of my style. I have a reputation for taking scientific ideas and making them easy and, and even fun to understand. Yeah. Um, so I look at how the mind really works. And then what do we need to do? You know, I look at things like defense mechanisms, what happened, different categories. Uh, and, you know, what are the best ways of managing conflict and problems and it turns out that the best ways of managing them are based actually on virtue and moral values now all the wise people of the past have said that you know uh, the wise person is somebody who is non-judgmental has humility and all of that and you know I take the reader down the path where you actually come to the same because if you're not based in virtue, what are you based in? Um, then it becomes very egotistical, um, very difficult to be open-minded, uh, following a particular track, pushing a particular cause, and then your thinking becomes derailed. Um, and so I, you know, I really understood that in, in writing this book. So I talk about, and I talk about the various biases that we all use to make us feel consistent with our narratives. Things like, you know, confirmation biases. We look for information that confirms our view, and we ignore or disinformation that contradicts it. So now it's easy to call anything that contradicts our view fake news. Right? Yeah. Oh, that's just fake news. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's not a good way of well, going through or life. That's a, or that's a conspiracy theory. <laughs> yeah, that's number one. Well, and the other thing, conspiracy theory comes because the brain and the mind will naturally connect two things that seem to happen at the same time. Mm. Okay, so 5G is being rolled out in China, and then the coronavirus starts. Oh my God, 5G is responsible for coronavirus. Now, wait a minute. <laughs> you got to dig down deeper and look at the serious evidence for that rather than just automatically, first of all, connect two ideas and then assume they're causally related, right? But the brain does that. You know, we do that, and that's the basis of conspiracy theories. Oh, all these CEOs resigned in January. Oh, they must have known what was going on. Well, you know, CEOs resign in January all the time. 
Um, and so, you know, that's a problem we face because we get so much information now. It's easy for us to find people or examples that justify our thought process and justify our emotional responses. And, you know, take you through the book. And one of the keys, obviously, if I'm talking about moral value and virtue, is the ability to manage your emotions. Um, that level of mindfulness is critical. Yeah. Absolutely critical. Yeah. Uh, and without that, you're just a slave to whatever you're feeling. Yeah. And that, you know, that sort of thing should be taught in schools. I mean, mindfulness should be taught in schools. Yeah, What I'm talking about, the thought process, should be taught in schools. I mean, really. I mean, honestly, do you really need to know, you know, if you live in the UK, do you really need to know a lot about, you know, sub-Saharan Africa and all of that? Do you really need to know what happened in 1438? Uh, yeah, but you need the right thinking skills first. If people emerged from their high school education, understanding how the mind works, that would be a huge blessing, rather than a lot of jumbled facts, yeah. which is what a lot of people come out with. Yeah. What would you like to see in the, you know, for the future in terms of, um, you know, in terms of going down, you know, the, the you know, obviously your, the re more research possibly, um, but also in terms of mental health, what would you like to see happening? A lot more research and a lot more people doing a lot more things, you know, education, what would you like to see? Well, I, I think better education, a, a different perspective on what mental illness is, and I think you and I share that perspective, that sort of labeling it an illness, I mean, I understand that from a health perspective, but there are other perspectives too. And again, we go back to the framing effect that we were talking about earlier. If you call somebody illness, something an illness, then somebody's sick. And if they're sick, then they somehow got it, which means they're not responsible for it or doing anything about it. And that's nonsense. Of course they are. I mean, it's unfortunate, but nobody can change but you. I do think we need more emphasis on behavioral change in the health system generally, particularly in the U.S. So many of the health problems in the U.S. healthcare system, which actually isn't very good, um, are lifestyle behaviors that could easily be changed. But is behavior change part of the healthcare program? Absolutely not. You know, I'd love to see coaches who know what they're doing taking over and helping people, for example, change their diet and stop being diabetic. It's definitely possible, right? Certainly yeah. type 2 diabetes, right? Uh, getting more exercise. Certainly bringing exercise back into schools. There's a huge relationship between physical activity and intelligence and learning. Definitely. Um, so there's some stuff that Definitely. is, you know, there's stuff that is so obvious that should be done. You know, that, that would be a huge breakthrough right now. Um, we know what should be done. It's just getting it done is, is the problem. Um, and so I definitely would like to open up um, more opportunities for more people. I mean, clearly there are sections of the community that don't get opportunities. I, I think they need to do that. I'd like to empower people. Uh, and empowering them also gives them responsibility. Hey, you can do something about this. You can actually change your risk of stroke, heart attack, you know, um, type 2 diabetes, all the things that are 
chronic in this country. Uh, you can do it. You can do it by you know changing your lifestyle rather than consuming meds for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, and it kind of it's funny because we can we've we've kind of um, in a sense we've kind of come. In a, in a conversation to full circles, what I was thinking there is when you when you when you were saying all that is about um, we've kind of come back to where, almost like the beginning of the conversation where it comes back down to we need to change through through maybe more narratives, more podcasts, more um, like you say more um, research, and then that research is not going to be like in some papers pushed on a shelf. It's you know it's let out there for people to to know about it. Because then what will happen is uh, more and more people get information about nutrition, um, health, fitness, um, and it would actually change that that perspective of advertising. You know, that people who advertise junk mm-hmm. food and, 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 you know, yep. so many TV stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like so, yep. yeah, you're definitely right. So um, where can your book be found? Um, you can find it on Amazon. It has both a, a relatively cheap ebook version and a paperback version. Um, and so um, that would be, be great. You can go look at the page, see if you like it. Um, and I also have an author page on Amazon that also includes some of my other books and things like In God's Waiting Room that I was talking about. Yeah. Um, so there's stuff there if people want to pursue other th- things that I've written. Most of the things I've written have been naturally psychology-based. Uh, I was involved with a big weight loss group uh, called Take Off Pound Sensibly, and I wrote, a, actually it turned out to be a best-selling book about inspirational stories uh, of that group of people who lost weight. That's called Inspired to Lose. Uh, I'm going to bring out a second edition of a book on communication called Power Talk, The Art of Effective Communication. Um, so there's a variety of things, but uh, all of those are available on Amazon. Yeah. Thank- and where can you be found? Where can you be found? Um, your book can be found. Where can you be found? I don't mean people knocking on, I don't mean people coming <laughs> yeah, yeah. on your door. And <laughs> knocking on my door. No, that's fine. Uh, I'm always, uh, always open to uh, emails. So my email address is simply D R H R A N. K-I-N-D-R-H ranking at gmail.com. I also have a podcast called How Not to Think, that really is a follow-up from the book and the things that I was talking about before about the thought process. So uh, the How Not to Think podcast is on most platforms and DRH ranking at gmail.com. All right, thank you for coming on and um, you know, I hope everything's everything's okay in um, South Carolina and everything's you know you know I hope you know we're always hoping I mean it seems it seems like it's going to clear up um, the, the, the virus and right. you know um, there's things pointing towards that it might be carrying up people saying there's going to be a second wave and blah blah, blah but um, it seems like it's going to clear it seems like it's going to be clear um, it's clearing up and it's reaching its peak in most places a lot of places are opening it um, I saw that in New Zealand um, the lady's doing, you know, the prime minister's doing brilliant today. She's, um, they haven't had it, they haven't had any cases for the last five days. So, you know, there's obviously something, something's, something's happening. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming on, and um, you know, oh, thank you, it's been brilliant. Um, I mean, and I'd like, to, you know, again, I'd like to have you back on again because I think you've got, um, 
I think you, you say you've got loads of stories there. You've got, you've got stories about um, footballing. <laughs> footballing, you know, I'm, I'm quite amazed actually because, I, you know, I wasn't expecting you to start talking about Wembley and all sorts of, and then Nottingham as well. So that's where I'm from. So um, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much, Andy. You stay well, and I'd love to come back um, at some later point. That'd be great. No, thank you. And that was Men Are Nuts. Speak to you soon.